0: Summary of the last class. Uh, we've been looking at what is true faith. Now, saying the word to faith assumes that there's a false faith. And that's part of what we dealt with when we were looking at the creedal imperatives, that the creeds of the church arose because there were those who were teaching the false faith. Not the gospel, the good news, but actually what it would become is the bad news, because it would keep you from the salvation that God has procured for you in Christ. False faith, such as the heretics of the first century and the heretics of the 20th century. Those who in our day and age preach that they're, do not preach on sin or preach that sin is almost irrelevant. And therefore we ought to just be happy and glad and prosperous and just believe God and all his positive promises and forget the negative ones. See, that's heresy. It's a, it's a false faith. It leads people away from Christ. So the, the, the um, catechism, which again at that time when it was written, also had false faith. They asked the question, what is true faith? And one of the things that they say is it comes to us from outside as a gift. Quoting Ephesians 2, 8-10. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Now sometimes people will say, well, our salvation is not our own doing. But, you know, this is why you learned English. You diagram sentences. And this, what does this refer to? The first thing back from it. Faith. This faith is not your own. It is the gift of God. Faith is, first of all, something that comes from outside of us. It is something that God has to give to us in order for us to know. That's why I need to apologize for something I said two weeks ago. I, in the hurryness of the moment, and just coming out of the top of my head, wrote down on this wonderful whiteboard, regeneration leads to rebirth. You know when you say something, you say, that doesn't sound good, and yet you keep talking about it? Anybody else ever done that? Okay, and I'm looking at that and I'm thinking about it afterwards going, no. Regeneration and rebirth are the same thing. What it is, is regeneration leads to faith. You have to be born again in order to believe in the gospel. Because in and of ourselves, in our sinfulness, our rebellion, our suppression of who God is, we would never believe. Therefore, God has to do the first work. In our day and age, and it's been that way for almost 200 years, we have moved it around regeneration. You have to believe to be reborn. And so we go to great lengths. Like a guy I was talking to yesterday who went to a church, and after the 39th chorus of just as I am the preacher finally got tired of saying aren't you coming up (laughs) you see you gotta make them believe you gotta do everything you can to make them believe you can't make anyone believe God does and therefore it comes from outside it's not a result of works you can't work up your faith for we, so that no one may boast. You know, if, if faith was regeneration, you know what you're going to do when you get to see God at your death? And he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Because I believed. It's the only work I ever did, but I believed. And he's going to go, <laughs> you did not. It was because I recreated you so that you could believe. I said, why should I let you in my heaven? I have no idea, Lord. (laughs) For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. I know it works. It worked before. Ha! No. You see... Old dogs can learn new tricks, but they can't do them. <laughs> There're two things essential to believe. One, God's revelation in the Bible. You have to have knowledge. And again, this speaks against our culture and our even the church where we have something called fideism. You just have to believe. Just trust. Just rely upon just rely upon Jesus. And then the question you ought to ask is, who is Jesus? And then you have to have knowledge that tells you who Jesus is. You know, just to say, just believe, is not faith, it's credulity, it's hope, it's desire, it's your own wants. Knowledge, some, you need some kind of body of truth upon which we can rely. So then we go back to the scripture which tells that all scripture from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's expirated by God. It comes from him through men who are writing the Holy Spirit overseeing what they wrote and how they wrote, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You see? the full-orbed ability that Scripture has on a person, and that man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It doesn't say the man of God may be perfect. It doesn't say the man of God will have it all together or know all things. In fact, you can spend your whole life reading that Bible and studying it, and you will only touch the surface of what it is. I think part of what heaven is you're going to be given a paper copy of the Bible. A paper copy, not not anything hand, no. <laughs> That's my own prejudice, okay? And you are going to be taught it forever. And you're going to mind the deep things of this word that others have not mined here in our time. And you're going to see how complete and beautiful it is. That you may be equipped for every good work. The second thing is the capacity to receive this revelation. It's one thing to have it. It's another thing to be able to bring it in. For instance, I know people who have a lot of Bibles that sit on their bookcase and on their coffee table and gather dust, and they say, I have a Bible. Or others who say, I read it, but I don't get anything out of it. They don't have the capacity to understand what it says so that part of that capacity is a conviction about the word and its truth that it is true that it is reliable that it is God's inerrant infallible inspired word and therefore every particular point part of it is true and that leads to a hearty trust in God first of all in order to do that you need a new birth but God being rich in mercy because of the great love by which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. You have to be alive to be able to read it. You have to know who the who the who God is. And you need God's spirit. First Corinthians, Paul is writing to a, a church and he says these things when he's talking about the uh, promises of God and the word of God. says these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches even everything, uh, searches everything, even the word of God. We can have the capacity to read a book, but it's only the spirit of God that illumines that book and makes it come alive. You've discovered this. I know it you sit down and you say, Lord, I want to read my Bible. And you open it up. And you begin reading through it. And then you go five minutes later, what did I read? You know, what did it say? Well, part of it is you weren't focused in on it enough. You were thinking about tonight's dinner or tomorrow's game or whatever it might be. But some of it is, the Spirit was not at that time working to illumine, open it up to you. So what you need is a spirit to reveal. That means he doesn't reveal more than what's in there. As as if the book were some kind of magic book that when you read it, the spirit will make it say things that it doesn't mean to say. Uh, We we have this in our own culture. We have favorite verses or we pick out parts of a verse, and we make it our own, and we pull it out of context. You know, it's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, which is one of my favorite verses. Is one of our verses for Peg and, I. and we look. I have the plans for you, not for well, not for your defeat, but for your welfare. To give you a future and a hope. And then we pull it out of the context. These guys are in exile. They were told they weren't going to go for anywhere for 70 years. They're supposed to live there. Pull it up. And that's God's plan for them. Many of them will never see Jerusalem again. And that's a good plan. It was for God. So you got to look at it in your context. Psalm 23 is done that same way. Over and over again. The Spirit simply takes what's written in there and expands upon it the reason first corinthians 2:14 natural person cannot accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned two people can be reading the same bible the same passage and one says man i understand what this says You must be born from above. It means I have to have a new life. And the other one could be like Nicodemus. How can you be born again? Do I have to enter my mother's womb another time? Which is a horrendous thought, especially for the mother. (laughs) And must I go through that whole process? You see, two people, same birth. It is the natural person will not accept the things of the spirit. It's folly, unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's a discernment of the spirit that must take place. So then we get to question 22, which is about where we left off two weeks ago. What is necessary to believe? All that is promised us in the gospel. You will notice I did not capitalize the word gospel Because it's not simply what's in the four books we call the gospel. It's in the good news. And this goes beyond a milquetoast gospel light faith. For instance, four spiritual laws. In our day and age, it's truncated. When we evangelize, we evangelize in a truncated way. Four spiritual laws. And we look at God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Jesus and it will be fulfilled. And we forget the whole aspect of why should I come to Jesus? And why is there an enmity between me and God? And it's because of sin. Or we take Romans, Romans Road and basically get to the end and say, you have to confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. And we say, that's all you need. You don't go, have to go any th- deeper than that. What? That's just the beginning. That's just sort of getting you to the point of being born again. It's like bringing a child into the world and laying it on the table and say, okay, grow up. <laughs> now, never works that way. We have to go beyond the gospel light faith. Nor is it elevating experience over Revelation which again is our culture and not only within our the land we live but the culture of our church experience trump's revelation for that i always like to go to second peter 3 second peter 3 or 116 we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I try to get as bass loaded as I can when I talk like that. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven For we were with him on the holy mountain. He's pointing to his uh, experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Christ, the the deity of Christ, shines forth from him. And there's Moses and Elijah. And the voice from heaven. It is probably one of the greatest events in all history. And it shook Peter to the point he didn't know what to say. Which you have to really shake Peter to get to that point. And he says, and we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he goes on, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Having been at the most, one of the most crucial, great, magnificent moments of all history of the earth, he says, you know what's even better? the Old Testament my reading the Old Testament is better than what I saw up on the mountain because the Old Testament the prophetic word is much more sure than even what I I witness and yet in our day and age I had this mountaintop experience which I'm not, not doubting that you have great times with the Lord but don't hang on to that those are simply meant to encourage you to get back to the word, which is the truth that we all need to read. So we can't elevate experience over revelation. What we do need to do is get back to what is necessary to believe. And here it is from the great commission Jesus gave to us. He calls his disciples to the mountain uh, And there he says, he comes and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, I am Lord of all things. That's the first thing you have to know. Go, or better yet translated, while you are going. That is, while you are living, while you are with your family, at work, walking with neighbors, cutting the grass, do whatever you're doing. While you are going, make Disciples. Make disciples. Not decisions. Make learners. Make followers. Mentor them until they are able to reproduce themselves. Make disciples of all nations. That is, this is things worldwide. It's going beyond just Galilee and Judea and what would have been known as the promised land. It's going to all the countries, all the tribes, all the nations, baptizing them in the name. Now, Again, catch the language. It doesn't say the names. The name is singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even there... He's telling us of the Trinity. Teaching them to observe, that is to be obedient to all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the urge. And we we just don't teach them to observe some of it and the rest of it. eh, You know, if you want to, use it. Now, everything, we are calling people to, to observe, to do. And then the promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, the question 22 talks about what is Catholic. Well, the word Catholic means universal. That is the fundamentals by which the universal and age-long church confesses what it knows is true and to which it is here, that adheres. The key words there are universal and age-long It's not what the church at 1444 Darst Avenue believes or in America or in certain in, in Europe or wherever, it is what the church around the world has declared to be the truth, not only around the world, but throughout the ages, from the very beginning. You may remember, I'm sure you do, when we talked about the creedal imperative. said one of the reasons you study the creeds is because they come from the early church, the church closest not only to the life of Jesus but also the apostles and the teaching of the apostles because they would have been given not only what was written down but they would have also heard the apostles teach and expand upon it. And these early church fathers would have known what the apostles wanted us to know and they would pass it on somehow we have come to believe in the 20th and 21st century we know better now than what the early church fathers knew back then and you know if they weren't serious about this you really got to laugh are you kidding me You have people who saw him. You have people who saw the apostles. You have people who wrote things down. They did write back then. Just not on their tablets. Well, they had a different kind of tablet. They wrote these things down and passed them on and put them together so that we might know the very core of what they knew was the faith. And the creeds and the Uh, catechisms give us that age-long church. And not only that, but it's a consistent witness throughout all the ages. The consistent witness, no matter where the church went, whether it was in India with Thomas or up to Britain or whether it was Paul finally making Spain, that consistent witness that was given and passed down and accepted throughout the ages. Uh, that's the beauty. In, in our day and age, we have watched in the last 200 years movements within the church that the early church knew nothing about. And they say, well, we're just growing and maturing. No, you're deviating. You're moving away from what the gospel and the core of the Christian faith is. What is the Catholic faith? Now also notice this, it doesn't say Roman Catholic. People look at that word Catholic and what do they think of? Oh, the Roman Catholic Church. Especially like something like the Apostles' Creed. It was written years before, decades, centuries before there was a Roman Catholic Church. It's a great word. And sometimes in order to placate individuals, we move it from Catholic to universal. But universal is a truncated word. It, it may mean worldwide, but it, Catholic brings age long. And I'm one who likes that word Catholic. In fact, when we say the Nicene Creed, I don't say universal, I say Catholic. I am a rebel at heart. Come on. <laughs> but that's what it is. Second thing, or third thing they talk about in question 22 is what is undoubted, that which is reliable, that which has shown itself to be true over the ages. You know, it's one thing to put together a theology in our day and age. The problem it is it hasn't been time tested. Theologies of the 19th and 20th century are disintegrating. Because over time, they realize they just don't work. They don't resonate with people. They don't build the church. They really don't speak of what's in the scriptures. And therefore, they kind of fizzle out. Something that's undoubted is reliable. And it's that which we have found in the Bible. God promised it at paradise. He proclaimed it by the patriarchs and prophets. He portrayed it by sacrifices and celebrations. That's why you read Leviticus. So you see the celebrations and you see Christ in all of that. He procured procured it by his son. That is, it is his son who made it ours or bought it. And it was pronounced, and pronounced it by his apostles. That's the good news. It's basically... The gospel is basically the scriptures. God must open the scriptures to us. He must convince us the Bible is true. This is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And Christ and the Holy Spirit must open our hearts and minds to understand the Bible. They must illuminate to us. I had colleagues in seminary who came in. Uh, believing the Bible was a word of God. Our seminary was not one that taught that. It taught it was the words of men about God. And there were others who, who say, yeah, it's just, it's just a nice book. You know." When you go to preach, find a passage because people expect you to have a passage and then turn to the New York Times. And that's what you preach upon. That's, in a nutshell, that's what they were saying. And then there were others of us who were saying, no, it's absolutely the word of God, jot and tittle. And the difference usually came down to whether or not the Holy Spirit witnessed internally that this is his book. That's somewhat subjective, but it is true. And so when you read, you know, two, again, two people can open up this book and say it's the words of men. One can say it's the words of men. The other say, no, no, you look at it. Can't you see that it's the word of God? Can't you see the consistency? Can't you see the beauty? Can't you see the majesty? Can't you see the subject that is in every book that ties it together from Genesis to Revelation? Can't you see the flow? And the other guy's going, no, no, no not really. The difference is the internal work of the Holy Spirit. And Christ and the Spirit must open our hearts and minds to understand it. Since we live in the last days, and this is from uh, Acts 2.17 where Peter is quoting Joel Joel 2.28 that in the last days the Spirit will come. The last days are not way out in the future. They're right now. This is the new age. New age is a bad term in our day and age. This is the age of fulfillment of what was in the Old Testament. We have a better, fuller revelation. Therefore, We read the Bible backwards. Now knowing Christ and with the hearing aids of the apostles. So that when you read the old, well the quote is, the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. You read backwards. You read, know your New Testament, you look back and you say, hey, this is what they were talking about. Uh, It's one of the things that the early church fathers did. Now, they kind of went overboard in an allegorical method, but they understood this. And so when they got to a place like Matthew 2, where Matthew, where Jesus is taken to Egypt, and at the end when they return, he says, Israel came out of Egypt. And they look at the Old Testament quote, and they look at it and say, it had nothing to do with Jesus. And they really didn't say too much about Israel. But that was an inspired, inerrant prophet, apostle, who was telling you what the truth of that passage from the Old Testament was really about. That's reading it backwards. But you also have to read it forward. See, sacrifice of Christ makes no, well, it doesn't make, it makes little sense unless you realize Leviticus. Back to that book. You got to read Leviticus. Slug your way through it, but you got to read it. That's the reliable truth. What's the summary of this truth? How much do I need to know? All which is in the Bible. That's the gospel. Someone says, what's the gospel? And you hold up your Bible and say, this is the gospel. Now, providentially, we have cliff notes. Do you guys know what cliff notes are? They were big when I was going to school because we got too involved in playing sports and doing other things. And you knew you had a paper on Oliver Twist coming up in three days. So if I'm never going to be able to read that book and write a paper in three days. What am I going to do? You went down to the store and you bought this little tiny pamphlet called Cliff Notes on Oliver Twist. It gave you all the characters, the outline of the book. It even gave you great quotes from that book. And you said, now I can write my paper and say I read Oliver Twist. You liar. (laughs) You didn't read Oliver Twist. (laughs) So what we have is Cliff Notes. And that is something like the catechism. Or something where the essentials are the, the Apostles' Creed. Okay. This is the cheat sheet, the Apostles' Creed. You get an opportunity to see what the Bible says in its cursory, overall picture. And then you've got to really go back and read the real book to get the depth. Augustine, Augustine no, Augustine, excuse me. Augustine's a city of Florida. Augustine was a saint. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, diverse, diversity, in all things, charity. And that's part of what a, a catechism or a confession does. It tries to bring out the essentials that upon which the church must be united. And the non-essentials will leave To individuals, and there's diversity about that, but in all things, love. I mean, I I work with people, or I've I've lived and worked with people who aren't as conservative as I am. Do they love the Lord? I believe they love the Lord. Their teaching has not been real good. That that which they were taught was not real good, and they're only working out upon what was worked in. But I know they love the Lord, and yet we can work together out of love. We can live in all things in charity. So I can have a friend who thinks in a premillennial way. Christ has come, you know, the tribulation, Christ comes back and all that stuff. And I say, you're my brother. I think you're absolutely wrong. I think you're stupid. But you're my brother. Well, you don't quite put it that way. <laughs> That's not charity. However, you can operate and work that way. So you have the Apostles' Creed, developed in the third and fourth centuries, still within the period of the formation of the church. The church took about four centuries to put itself together. I mean, it didn't, it didn't come with a basic manual, this is how you do things. And it's, the, the joy of it is one, first of all, it's personal. You know how we start the Nicene Creed. We, which is a un- unity statement. We as a body believe it. And as you say, we as a body believe it. That means you can give or take, as I said. I use the word Catholic. I, there's a couple other things I change when I say it because I think it's a different way of saying it. That's we I says this is mine. I own it. In fact, the Apostles' Creed was used at baptisms. More yet, more than merely a personal statement of faith, which is what usually happens at baptisms in our day, and age. Uh, you know how I came to Christ, what I believe put it together. Uh, In my background, when you got to be ordained, you had to write a one-page statement of faith. What? One page? I have 1,080 pages! But they wanted to keep it short because they like Presbyterian meetings that go for a couple hours. Okay? At baptisms, You didn't read your own personal statement of faith. You read and affirmed the Apostles' Creed as what you believed. And that is why they let you. You spent a year training to understand it and to accept it. And if you deviated from one iota, they said, well, maybe let's give you another year to think about it. It became personal. It was connected it connects one with the historic church. I mean, you're going back into the third or fourth century when you say it, or the Nicaea Creed, a little bit uh, around the same time. It was developed while the church was primarily one. That is, there was only one church throughout all of the Mediterranean area of the known world, and even over a little bit into Tur- uh, India. There is only one church they all considered they didn't think i'm roman catholic i'm eastern orthodox i'm protestant i'm presbyterian i'm whatever i want to be they were all one and they looked at themselves that way 24 division of the articles, section one first person god the father he's almighty he creators and what that's meant to do is to lead you to consider your own creation and how you fail fall far short of that creation but what god has created you and made you to be how he has knit you together in your mother's womb. Section 2, the second person, Jesus the Christ, the God man, the savior and lord, and that's to lead us to consider our own redemption. Again, you just don't run through this. You take your time and think, he did it for me. And this is why he had to do it and this is why he, this is what he did. And section three, which is coming up? Well, here's, I have it on your paper as well. Uh, From the scriptures, a proof that Jesus is the God-man. I love the John passage. He forgives the sins of a paralyzed man, and the Pharisees begin to question him, and he says, I and the Father, I and the Father am one. We're united. No, we're the same, but different. I mean, there's a father and there's a son. And of course, Pharisees being good theologians say, are you kidding? You, being a man, make yourself to be God. And they were picking up stones to kill him. He walked out of that one. Or John 2, 24 to 29, where Thomas, a good Jew, said, my Lord and my God, which would be repugnant and anathema if he was not, if Jesus was not who he is, the Lord and God. And Revelation 5, where the Bible commands us to worship Jesus, and that ought to be repugnant unless he is who he says he is. Section 3, the Holy Spirit and his work. The church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has guided and directed the church over the centuries. He's put it together, and I think he's allowed the divisions so that in the divisions the truth could be seen. He builds communion, the community together. I mean, we try to do it, in some churches I know try to do it with donuts and coffee. After, after church, let's have our fellowship time. And the kids are already down there eating and chomping on the donuts and the, uh, the, the juice. And the parents come down and they talk about baseball games and they talk about everything else. But the Spirit is there to develop a community of people who love one another, who share their faith, and who work for one another. Forgiveness of sins. It's the Spirit that helps you to forgive people. Notice it doesn't say the forgetfulness of sins. You never forget sins. God never forgets your sins. How can an omniscient God ever forget sins? He can't, but he can forgive. That is, he can say, I will never, ever bring that up back up to you. They're gone. The resurrection of the body. Uh, that is not only your own death, but as when Christ comes back and life evermore, life everlasting. And all of these lead us to consider who we are or how we ought to live. That's a spelling error. Silly spell check. <laughs> no, it's how we ought to live. You know, that third section tells us this is how this is what we ought to be doing. So you have the third spirit, the the third question, the Holy Spirit, the gift and the giver. Jesus said, ask, I will, I will ask the father and he will give to you another helper, another paraclete, another counselor is a way sometimes That word another means one just like me, absolutely just like me. You think it's bad that I'm going, no, I'm going to send someone just like me. Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus told his disciples that not only did they need that counselor, they needed the power in which to live. And in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, you have the fruit of the Spirit. Notice something about the fruit of the Spirit. Everyone is relational. You cannot exercise the fruit of the Spirit without being in relations. It is not simply individualistic. It's relational. Question 25. Why do we speak of three persons with one God? Well, God has revealed it in His Word. That ought to be enough. God said it. That settles it. And It's not... God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Forget about whether you believe it or not. It's true. Matthew 28, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, it's a singular name, singular God, but with three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you have one of the great ways in which to Di- diagram this, because we, we think of one God and three persons, and we think of uh, H2O. This morning I woke up and I had a big glass of water. I heated the water in our tea kettle and I had a hot cup of tea. I put ice in with my drink here, and I'm not telling you what my drink is, you'll have to find out. My drink here, and it's hard water that's keeping it cool. Yeah, they're good. I think Grudem had a great illustration. There's one God. There's a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. All with same attributes, characteristics. There's 2 Corinthians, another one. Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus shows the Trinity working together. And so so there's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, one meaning unity, singularity, uniqueness. Unity says there's got to be more than one part of unity. So you have that. Second part: The true God existed three persons with the same divine attributes and character. His attributes deal with make him God. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his eternality, his immutability—all those kind of quick those attributes. His character is what defines his lifestyle. He is faithful. He is true. Uh, he is love. He is holy. So the Westminster Larger Catechism says how many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Spirit, and the Holy Ghost. These three are the one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And thirdly, each person is distinct from the other. The Father is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, who is not the Father. Now this deals with the heresies we talked about in the creedal imperative. And so Calvin writes the same thing. It's on on your paper. The one I like to add is a fourth, you are not that God. (laughs) Okay? Just remember, you, the fourth one is you are not that God. (laughs) Most people forget that. (laughs) You know, they think they're the fourth person of the Trinity. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Why is God triunity, Which is one of the words I like to use instead of Trinity. I try unity. It brings the concepts together. Trinity is needed for its own relationships. Trinity has family and fellowship. It's a unit of persons. They love, that is, they serve one another. They serve, they obey what is needed to be done. When the Father says, that we are going to fix this sin problem by you, the Son, going and uh, becoming human and and dying on a cross and raising the dead. The Son says, write me in. That's my job. Spirit, where where, that fruit of the Spirit operates within the Trinity because it's all relational. And finally... His His Triunity demonstrates how we are to live. We live in relationships. We live in love and service. We live in fruit bearing. I mean, that's part of the key of the Tri the Trinity. It's not simply something way out there, unassociated with us. But you look at how the Trinity operates, and you see how we are called to operate. And when we deviate from how the Trinity operates, we are deviating from what he has called us to do. So when we are not patient, which is tried time and time again when we're out on the highway, ask my wife, we are not acting like the Trinity. What this means for us, and it's in here somewhere, ah, that our lives are meant to sing his praise and give him glory. You read Psalm 98. The real living is praising God before asking for our needs. Notice how the disciples prayer that's commonly called the Lord's Prayer said Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. It isn't until the middle of the prayer that we even get into thinking about our own needs. And that's what's important. When you pray, you begin a long time of praise for the Trinity, triune God. You notice how I start my prayers? I learned this years ago and I try to keep it up even in my private prayers. Heavenly Father, I come to you through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's not only the format of prayer, of how prayer operates, but it's reminding me, I'm not just speaking to my Father. I'm speaking to the Son and the Spirit. And later on in the prayer, I may say, Lord Jesus, I need His Holy Spirit come and awaken. But when I start, I remember it's a triune God. And that's what's important. That's what the Apostles' Creed is going to help us understand. That's why we're going, uh, going toward it and going to study it over the next few weeks. Uh, when I'm here. Okay, let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful that you have given to us your word. We are thankful that you have prevailed upon us to bring us to yourself. And we are thankful, O Lord, that you've given us the cliff notes by which we can understand the whole of your word, even as we dig out the parts. Help us, O oh Lord, in our week as we think about these questions to discern that which is true and right and have it cemented in our hearts and our minds, our spirits, and then that which is dross to be burnt and to be destroyed. For Father, our desire more than anything else is to give you praise and adoration for the greatness of who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.